Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Moza Afsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer. And uh, today we have a very special guest uh, in uh, Daniel Murray, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Thanks, Mo. It's always, always great to be on. So um, we thought, uh, given where we are in the macro cycle and uh, the many, many questions that are coming in from uh, from our clients and from our, our client relationship managers, we thought we would um, would have a title of a special podcast called Current Economic and Market Controversies. So uh, Daniel and I will uh, try and go through some of the um, the key questions that are on uh, investors' lips at the moment and uh, try our best to try and answer them as fully as we can. Obviously, some of these uh, questions are, are obviously quite tricky to, to handle given the environment we're in, but certainly I think it's a, a good introduction into, um, into the world at large. So maybe, um, uh, Daniel, the first question to you is... Uh, current growth prospects uh, around the world. Obviously, we've got uh, accelerating economic growth uh, pretty much in, in most places in the world. Maybe India is probably the, the slight exception given um, the COVID situation there. But um, maybe you can highlight some of the key developments in terms of economic growth at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's always a very good starting point for thinking about the investment environment. So really uh, key to have a firm sense as to what's going on in the world from a growth perspective. And the short answer is that actually it's looking pretty good this year for global growth. Uh, Recent estimates from the likes of the IMF and OECD have seen growth estimates for this year be revised higher. Um, And uh, that reflects, of course, the happy coincidence of, first of all, coming from a low base last year, but uh, lots and lots of policy support, both on the monetary and fiscal side. And of course, um, the uh, the fact that vaccinations are being rolled out pretty quickly in most parts of the world, even the countries that were lagging um, uh, a few months ago are starting to catch up now. So that sort of happy coincidence of coming off a low base last year, so you get the natural bounce, plus this uh, very strong policy support on the monetary and fiscal side, plus um, the uh, the vaccination uh, rollout is, I think, very much supportive of growth. I think it's interesting, you know, the nuances are slightly different. Normally, when you get these cyclical, these big cyclical events, you see emerging markets suffer more on the downdraft, but then recover better on the updrafts. And I would say that impact is less profound on this occasion. So, of course, emerging markets did suffer last year, but the rebound this year is still strong, but it's um, relatively less strong um, than uh, than with developed markets than we would have seen in previous cycles. And that, of course, reflects partly that um, they've been less able generally to apply stimulus measures uh, this year. And I guess the the big one for us, um, China watchers at least, is that US growth and European growth probably outperforms Chinese growth. Uh, well, it's a possibility. Certainly US growth is forecast to be up there with Chinese growth. Remember, Chinese growth was slowing anyway, on, on a trend basis ahead of, ahead of the crisis as you know, the economy matures and as the demographics deteriorate out there. So, um, but China, of course, you know, for an economy that's already pretty large and for an economy that's got so many people, it's growing pretty quickly, um, sort of uh, you know, around about 6% expected for this year. Um, and the US economy expected to be similar. Europe uh, expected to lag a little bit for, for this year, but still be very strong by European standards. Um, and uh, I think, you know, for China, what's particularly interesting is obviously China was the first country in the world to experience COVID and was the first country to come out 
So it's had a much smoother path of growth. And this relates to the point I just made about emerging markets having a different experience on this occasion. And so we haven't quite seen the extremes of the lows and the highs that we've seen in other countries. So the rebound in in China is going to be less explosive than uh, for the developed world. So one of the points the sell side in particular at the moment is making around peak growth um, and what that means. Um, So just as a reminder for our listeners, peak growth is where if you like, if you take quarterly numbers, it's the growth number that's the highest point in terms of growth and clearly the base effect makes all the difference here. Um, um, you know, what you, what's your kind of counter to that peak growth kind of argument? Because it's, it's you know, if you go back uh, over time, just when the PMI is at the highest point and, and that certainly has some connotations for certain sectors. Yeah, so, I, I mean, obviously... The, you know, very simply, the sharper and the more profound the drawdown, then the greater the opportunity for there to be a a very um, rapid quarter of robust growth. And, you know, typically you will see this um, uh, period when um, everything coincides. You get a natural rebound in activity and confidence. You get um, the the lagged effect of previous uh, policy implementation and... uh, uh, that conspires to produce a really strong quarter or two. And I think, you know, we, we probably have seen that already. I think um, for most economies around the world, there are a few key touch points to watch. And this relates unusually more to the level of output than it does to the growth rate. And normally it's the growth rate that's more important. But I think at the moment, the level is also really important. And so first of all, I think, you know, we should be looking as a marker for a point in time when economies surpass the previous pre-COVID peak in output. And for, well, China's already done it. For the US, it will probably happen um, in the second half of this year. And for Europe um, and the UK, probably the first half of next year. And for other parts of the world, it it varies. So that's one marker. A second marker is to look at um, what happens uh, when, um, uh, when will economies surpass the previous trend? In other words, you say, if we hadn't been hit by the COVID shock, where would GDP be expected to be today? And I think that's another marker to look at in terms of the road to recovery. So we say, well, GDP pre-COVID peaked um, here, then we expect it to have grown a little bit since then. So without COVID, GDP would be at this level now. So that's another useful thing um, to look at. And of course, in that context, um, very important to look at labour markets and what's happening there. Um, so we know, for example, in the US, that although the economy is growing very strongly, first of all, there's uh, 8 million fewer people employed today than there were at the pre-COVID peak. And secondly, the distribution of job gains has not been equal across society. There's obviously been some sectors that have benefited quite a lot and other sectors that have suffered. So um, hopefully that will uh, help the listeners think a bit about the growth environment and things to look out for Mm. so uh, maybe just to kind of repeat that again so step one do we get above the uh, um, pre-pandemic growth or uh, peaking growth rate so step one and step two is the trend uh, pre-covid and whether we're back up to that level so uh, so uh, i think that's actually a really good way to uh, to think about it Um, so the next obvious question then is uh, inflation uh, obviously uh, probably our, 
our most frequently asked question at the moment. Um, and, uh, and inflation, is it coming? Is it not coming? I think um, maybe sort of a, a, a quick summary. Um, the general our view is that, you know, there's little evidence yet. And, and I think thinking in the context of step one and step two, we can safely say that we don't think step uh, that um, inflation will necessarily come at step one. But really, when we get to step two and above, if 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 we do get above uh, step two, and I think also then it's the the short term impact around supply side constraints that are there, and really difficult for people to really get their heads around whether the inflation numbers we're seeing at the moment or the inflated prices that we're seeing in moment in certain um, instances. Are, are temporary or and, and ones that just recover and those are call them supply chain issues like semiconductors and 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 those sort of things that are clearly creating that but presumably when people get back to work that side of the equation should wash out pretty quickly i would have thought um maybe um you know we've written a lot about inflation maybe you can summarize the key points yeah so the, the first point to note is this uh, famous base effect that everyone's talking about and um that simply reflects the fact that last year there was a sharp drawdown in US inflation associated with COVID. And this year, that means that the year-on-year comparisons look very easy. And so you naturally get an uplift. And it's just a pure statistical and mathematical effect. And that effect is going to peak in May. And so uh, we expect inflation naturally to fade thereafter because that base effect is going to wash out. So that's the first thing to bear in mind. Um, and, uh, you know, we should start to notice that from June onwards, but obviously confidence will build as, as the second half of the year progresses, that that effect is indeed washing out. I think, um, you know, as you correctly noted, there clearly are supply bottlenecks in the economy in certain places, and uh, that's uh, important to note. And those do have the potential to spill over more broadly. But again, our, our core view is that that's not going to happen. And um, that's because whilst it's convenient for journalists and others to write about these things and it makes good headlines. When you look at the constituents of inflation indices more broadly, there's plenty of other components that are suffering and that are actually experiencing disinflation and that continue to suffer as a result of COVID. And that sort of balances out the areas where there are bottlenecks. So overall, um, we're not seeing anything unusual. The inflation is behaving broadly as we would have expected given the very unusual situation of last year. I think perhaps just uh, I'll just make one final point, and that's that it's important to distinguish between price level effects and uh, trend inflation effects. So there's a number of price level effects that will see the, the price level uh, possibly jump a bit higher. And so, for example, I can imagine that in certain parts of the service sector, there's going to be capacity constraints as a result of COVID. Perhaps restaurants won't be able to seat so many people and cinemas and so forth, they will have their capacity reduced. And that might uh, encourage those firms to raise prices because uh, they'll have to cover their costs and it'll be more difficult to do so with uh, with fewer, fewer customers. And so you might well see uh, one, a one-off uh, step increase in prices. And that might result in a, a slight increase in inflation for a period of time. But again, that would wash out over the year. And that's very different to uh, a trend increase in inflation that would be expected to endure over a period of time. Um, so overall, then, our, our, you know, our current view is that uh, most of these effects will wash out. We'd expect to start to see that really uh, take effect in the second half of the year. But we are watching the data very closely for any signs of spillover. 
I guess the, um, uh, again, putting the context of step one, step two, step two, once we're back above trend growth or or, um, or, or at trend or even below trend, that impact we won't really see for at least till the end of 2022 or even 23. I, would I think that's right. And certainly that, that view reflected in, uh, you know, central bank forecasts that the not really thinking about the meaningful return uh, to inflation on a trend basis for uh, for some time, uh, and of course, you know, they also need to, and we also need to consider the uh, the fact that unemployment rates are, are still relatively high, um, and typically that's uh, not an environment that you know, is conducive to, to strong levels of inflation. Absolutely. So that obviously leads to. Um, you know, uh, how to hedge inflation. Um, again, it's one thing is, is obviously having it and the uh, inflation then in terms of portfolio construction and how you do it, maybe a, just a few words on that. Um, you know, generally the obvious one is commodities and commodity prices typically would, um, would, would keep up or, or even, um, outstrip uh, inflation. So that's the, the one, um, you know, relationship that's, that has been there, you know, consistently. Um, I just caution again how much of that price increase is supply shocks versus demand shocks, and I think um, you know that's uh, something that uh, is still unknown, and um, we we have to be very careful of. And certainly, um, if I look at um, you know um, commodity related companies such as energy or or, or um, materials companies, they've already moved quite dramatically from in, in price terms. So one has to be a little bit careful uh, in terms of the, the allocation, how much is reflation and how much is um, uh, inflation. Um, and then the other sort of things uh, around, you know, staying shorter in duration on fixed income, being a little bit more cautious in terms of, um, um, uh, you know, companies that are would be considered long duration. So all of those things one can do to mitigate. And um, more recently, you know, infrastructure is starting to look like a more interesting asset class as well from a, from an inflation perspective. And, uh, you know, that's some, something certainly we're looking at. Um, so inflation then, I guess the big question is uh, timing of uh, Fed tightening and uh, withdrawal of the extra, um, uh, you know, extra stimuli, uh, extra stimulus that has been applied. Um, um, obviously, difficult to know. Um, but what's your what's your base case at the moment? I think this is one of the key things for markets to think about. It's interesting that um, you know the FOMC has indicated that they're nowhere near to tightening rates, yet there's been uh, consistent messaging over the past couple of months how they're willing to look through uh, short-term increases in inflation, how they remain concerned about uh, the fragility of the economy and the associated impact on labour markets and so forth. So they've been uh, you know, repeating a very dovish message, but markets have been um, a little bit uh, earlier in terms of expectations of when the Fed might start to taper or or even hike rates. So different messaging there. Um, I think um, the Fed has you know, done well in terms of supporting the economy through the crisis, but at some point we all know their support has to come to an end or it has to be scaled back. They've also indicated that they will signal well ahead of time that uh, they're going to start to reduce the scale of their asset purchase, they're going to start to taper. And I think... Um, 
working back from there if they want to give themselves at, at least a, a six-month lead over um, the timing of uh, when they do actually start to taper. And if, they, if the economy continues as is, then perhaps um, they might um, start to think about tapering in uh, the first quarter of next year. And that would suggest that they would have to start signalling and talking about tapering um, sometime perhaps over the late summer, possibly at Jackson Hole, uh, possibly at one of the uh, the Fed meetings uh, in uh, after the summer. Uh, I think yeah, very interesting. This week we had the release of the FOMC minutes, and whilst the broad messaging was still very dovish and uh, talked about how there's still a significant way to go for the economy to recover and uh, before the uh, the Fed's objectives are met, there was a, a brief discussion in there about when. Uh, the FOMC should start to talk about tapering. So it's uh, interesting that they've just started to introduce that concept and perhaps are just starting to warm markets and investors up to the idea that um, at some point uh, they are going to have to scale back uh, their asset purchases. be interesting to see the bond market reaction um, you know, to that because... Obviously, one of the big challenges for fixed income markets is, and bond markets is, if the Fed moves too soon in terms of um, tapering, then we could even see a bond market that rallies or yields go down because the bond market feels that the economy is not strong enough to sustain, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a, a tapering. Uh, which so I think. Uh, I guess the reaction in the bond market is going to be, I think, quite key to how, you know, investors then, you know, position their portfolios subsequently. Um, uh, and I think, you know, what to me is very interesting is, at least at this stage, bond yields have kind of peaked back in March and they've been just in a range for the last two months. Um, maybe that's an anticipation of that tapering already. Um, so it is quite interesting to... Um, um, to, to think about what the bond market reaction, what the second order impacts would be on um, uh, on tapering. And often, as we know, in these situations, um, you know, things kind of move way ahead of themselves. And if I think about the last cycle, 2011, um, we had a we had a big sell off in, in in bond markets in 2010 and the early part of 2011. And then you know, we we had by the end of that year, partly because Europe was starting to 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 crater um, a huge rally in that in 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 the, in the long end of bond market, and basically inflation never returned after that. You know, it was the end of it. Um, so I think it's quite a delicate time, and I think investors trying to prejudge the conclusion I think is quite dangerous. Um, certainly, in my point of view, because I don't think it's that clear how the bond market would react, given it's already moved quite significantly from the lows already. Yeah, look, I completely agree, Mose. Um, it's a really delicate balancing act. Um, and at the moment, the Fed seems to have got it right. But as we saw in 2013 with the taper tantrum back then, it's really easy. You know, one uh, errant speech or one misconstrued sentence here or there, and these things can, uh, <laughs> can unravel quickly. quickly so yeah. it's a very delicate balancing act. I think they are doing their very best to communicate well with the market and, and with investors and to make sure that their reaction function is well understood. Uh, but I think they've also given themselves plenty of leeway 
to be flexible in their approach. You know, they've talked about how they're willing to let inflation run hot for a while to compensate for the long period of time that inflation was below trend. Um, they have uh, also introduced um, the distribution of unemployment as well as the aggregate labour market conditions into their discussions, and uh, that gives them extra flexibility in uh, in you know, uh, the timing of, of when they want to tighten policy. So I uh, completely agree, very delicate, and uh, you know, bond markets are, are finely balanced in that context. So moving over to the ECB, obviously we've seen now uh, treasury bond yields go into a range at the long end, and but we've seen continued sell-off our yield bond yields in, in Europe moving higher now, also with a stronger euro. What do you think the ECB are thinking about at the moment? Um, would they be kind of happy or disturbed that um, the policy is moving ahead of them? I think it depends who you speak to at the ECB. <laughs> so I'm sure the uh, you know, the German contingent probably less happy about uh, bond yields and are less happy about uh, the quantitative easing that the ECB is engaged in and are, are less happy about the large deficits. But I suspect that uh, the Lagarde contingent and others are actually pretty happy about it. And it just reflects the improved economic outlook. I think you know one of the distortions to markets the European bond markets was the fact that um, because uh, Germany was uh, running a balanced budget for such a long period of time, it meant there was there wasn't so much German debt on the market. And Germany, being the largest eurozone economy, the ECB was forced to buy quite a lot of it. And uh, so that lack of supply of uh, German government bonds created a, a, um, a distortion in the market. So I, I'm sure that one of the uh, unintended consequences of the COVID crisis that there's now going to be much more German debt on the market, and that to some extent will help alleviate the, uh, the supply pressures. So I think the you know the move higher is uh, is understood well in that context. Mm. Um, how high do bond yields need to go? Do you think in in Germany and then obviously associated in Europe before people start to worry or ECB starts to worry? Do you think? That's a good question. I'm not sure there's any precise number, and I think it will depend on um, which country. So in other words, if if bunts go up, spreads stay tight against the peripheral debt, that's probably a reasonably good environment. It's probably reflective of a return to normality. It's probably reflective of a more optimistic growth outlook and the fact that um, uh, there's greater confidence that um, there'll be a sustainable recovery even as stimulus is withdrawn. And I think that would be no bad thing. If, of course, we saw... Um, bunt yields maybe move a bit higher but generally stay quite low but we saw peripheral spreads blow out then clearly that would be a much more negative thing and that would uh, speak to a lack of confidence in markets about uh, fiscal sustainability of some of these countries that um, we know have got very high debt levels. So let's move a little bit sort of further out in geography terms so um, in 2013 when we saw the taper tantrum the worst performing asset class that year was actually emerging market debt uh, and the sensitivity of emerging markets to US interest rates. Do you expect a similar occurrence um, when the Fed does finally uh, taper? I think there'll certainly be a knee-jerk reaction and um, I think the subsequent follow-through will uh, just depend on a whole load of factors. I mean, you know, COVID has changed uh, not just the world we live in on a day-to-day basis, but it's also changed some of the underlying relationships in markets. 
Um, so um, I think, you know, what I referred to earlier about the, the different growth environment for emerging markets on a cyclical basis relative to developed markets, I think that's also likely to impact um, the debt markets. Um, so, uh, you know, if growth is weaker um, and, uh, and the Fed tightens, then clearly that's not great for emerging market debt. Um, but uh, it may well be that, that by then they've, uh, you know, come through the COVID crisis and perhaps growth is back on a firmer footing. So need to watch it very closely. And as ever, uh, uh, look at each country uh, individually. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, the world and those relationships are definitely um, a change. Obviously, we also you know, certainly seeing a lot of populist areas or populist governments certainly in, in Latin America and Turkey and, and elsewhere that are just making the dynamics actually very, very different from what they've been in the past. So um, um, kind of the next topic we had was round about permanent and versus temporary post-COVID changes. Um, obviously a very wide uh, kind of topic. What, what do you think is going to become permanent and what do you think is going to be, um, you know, um, I, I guess go back to normal very quickly? Yeah, I think... You know, some of the permanent changes will revolve around the you know, how we work and how we interact with each other. Um, uh, so clearly we are now, as a society and around the world, all accustomed to working from home and interacting on a, a video screen. And I think that shift is probably semi-permanent. It may be that we uh, all ultimately spend one or two days a week in the office and you know a few days a week at home. Um, and uh, I think yeah, that, that may not be any bad thing. Uh, I think, you know, it's interesting, had we uh, as a company in isolation said pre-COVID that we were going to start to meet with clients and things virtually, it would have been viewed very dimly and would have been viewed as a deterioration of the quality of service we provided to our clients. But now, of course, because everyone is doing it at the same time and everyone's forced to do it, I think it's just become the norm and people have, people have adjusted. So I think that sort of thing will be permanent. Um, I think probably... Things like uh, um, restaurants and social activity, I suspect that will return to normal over time, but not immediately. And probably what will happen is that as vaccines get rolled out across an increasingly high proportion of the world, then so people will feel increasingly comfortable about going to uh, locations where there'll be members of the public. And so I suspect, you know, it might take a year or two, but I suspect that will come back relatively quickly obviously subject to local rules and regulations and similarly travel as well i think uh initially people nervous but uh, as confidence builds that the vaccines work and that um the fight against covid has been won then i think actually people are there's a lot of pent-up demand and people are itching to get away that you know as we've discussed before you'll never get back the whole days and that, that people weren't able to take during covid but i think there's a lot of appetite for uh, people to start to live their lives normally again. Yeah, no, I would certainly uh, certainly agree that with that. I think um, um, uh, you know we start to see, for example, in real estate, we start seeing you know investors question whether they need as much office space as they needed before. Um, I think that's it's obvious. I think that's still playing out. I think certain industries. Um, there's a nice note out today um, around the legal profession suddenly realise that actually they can actually work very easily from from home 
uh, or from uh, out of office locations. Um, so there are going to be some of these kind of structural changes and they will, I think they will be permanent. I think also corporate travel, I think, will be a lot less than it used to be. Um, although consumer travel probably will be um, just as strong as it used to be. So I think um, there are some kind of subtle dynamics there. Um, and then also in real estate, um, you know, uh, you know, home residential real estate, you know, we've already started seeing this in suburbs in the, in, in London, um, New York and suburbs and so on and so forth. Real estate prices have just rocketed higher uh, and um, people want more space uh, and know that they don't need to do that big commute, you know, more often than they than they um, or than they needed to before. So um, there are some kind of permanent behavioural challenges, as well as, you know, the, the obvious technology improvements we've seen and people, use, you know, even grandparents very happily using um, Revolut and, and other online activities, uh, um, uh, you know, very easily where they probably wouldn't have otherwise um, been able to. So there's um, definitely a kind of permanency to it. I guess, you know, linking that onto the the um, uh, the economy um, and and global trade, um, one of the things that certainly is coming out from the Biden administration already is this kind of notion of um, uh, making it built at home or maybe ensuring everything is built in the U.S. I mean, this is a you know, we 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 uh, we've been for the last three or four years talking about this tripolar world, and and you know, I think at the time it was a fairly opaque kind of concept, but I think what we clearly and driven by Trump's process, but I think what we have seen is COVID is has really changed the dynamics of the supply chain, and people's need for supply chain the chain not just in health but in everything they do. Um, and you're already starting to see, certainly in the latest packages in the US, is a lot more money for local manufacturing and um, infrastructure to support that manufacturing. Um, and we, you know, certainly China's influence in Asia continues uh, and Europe is kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, what's your thoughts around global trade, less global trade going forward? Uh, more insular economies going forward? Yeah, and as you said, Moses, this relates back to our thesis on the tripolar world, and I think everything is pointing to that thesis being correct. I think uh, you know, COVID has probably accelerated that. It's made countries realise that supply chains, whether it's for vaccines and the ability to uh, produce vaccines and other um, health goods and services domestically, or whether it's uh, computer chips for auto production, there's a need to have some insurance mechanism in place so that companies can, countries can, um, and companies can continue to produce um, in the event that the supply chains are massively disrupted. So, so I think that's right. I think that's a trend that will continue. I think that trend is also consistent with um, public sentiment, and we know that in America, although Trump was very controversial in his anti-China policies and in his uh, policies to negotiate trade policies bilaterally with uh, other countries. Actually, the Biden administration has not done a complete U-turn on that. And we know that public sentiment towards China in the US is still quite negative, And there's still a lot of support for the US to 
continue to be tough with China. And of course, we've uh, seen uh, similarly, Europe has uh, also adopted a tough line with, with China. And whilst European-US relations have improved a bit uh, uh, post-Trump, um, uh, you know, they're definitely uh, moving in the direction where Europe will seek to be more self-sufficient. So uh, I think that thesis is com- still completely correct. Mm. Does beg the question what happens to the uk we're basically mm-hmm. on our own <laughs> in the uk um not part of europe not part of us um or anywhere I, you know maybe in bygone areas uh, eras that was probably okay but it does strategically just kind of put us at odds with with what we want to what the uk will will want to be yeah it's it's going to be tough for the uk and i and uh Lots of uncertainty over the next few years in the post-Brexit world. Um, naturally, countries tend to trade most with uh, other countries that are physically closest to them because, of course, it's just easier and cheaper to transport goods and services across borders that way. Um, so the UK has made it harder to trade with Europe. It's still relatively easy. I'm sure once companies get used to the bureaucracy, it will uh, continue to improve. But it's, you know, Barriers are in place now that weren't there pre-Brexit. And I think, of course, also the, the big question mark hangs over our industry, financial services, that, that trading relationship is still yet to be um, uh, fully fleshed out and determined. And uh, that's obviously a, a massive uh, export market for the UK. So uh, lots to be sorted out there. Mm, it's going to be an interesting, interesting development. So the other sort of big question we get is around... Uh, the amount of debt that is out there, particularly government debt, uh, that has continued to 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 increase, obviously due to COVID, and and in many countries we're at sort of uh, uh, you know post World War Two kind of levels um, or levels we haven't seen since since uh, since World War Two. Um, how do governments get out of it? I think the honest answer is they probably don't. At least not in the short term. I think it takes very many years. Uh, the um, you know, We only have to look to Japan to see how far these things can go. As long as you have a complicit central bank, and um, certainly most central banks around the world have been helpful in terms of their asset purchase programs, then I think actually uh, it's not a major problem. We know that debt servicing costs remain very low. We know that uh, should there be any problem in bond markets, and should uh, bond market issues create challenges for the economy more broadly, then central banks will just step in and increase their asset purchases again. So I think I'm not particularly worried about debt levels at the moment. And similar analogies apply to uh, to private sector as well. Debt servicing costs remain low and very affordable both for households and corporates, so not currently a problem. Um, there is obviously the potential, you know, if rates rise far enough and if the debt mounting gets big enough, then uh, that would uh, potentially be a little bit more challenging. But at the moment, that doesn't look to be the case. How does that dovetail then into tax rates? Obviously, it seems to be the the popular thing to do is to increase corporate tax. Um, and there are you know, pretty good reasons. I think if you look at the uh, uh, Trump corporate tax cuts uh, that, uh, that he implemented, um, I guess, kind of halfway through his term, um, they were completely ineffective in terms of stimulating capex or anything else. They just just went to buybacks and you just went down a 
a plug hole. <laughs> Doesn't like see. And in the opposite direction, you know, one could argue that corporate tax increases would be expected to have relatively little impact. Companies will, you know, try to maximise their profits, whatever, and uh, yeah, they might uh, try to move their profits around the world and might try to play the game of uh, minimising them via legal means, but um, uh, ultimately they will you know, still try to do their best. Uh, I think, you know, corporate taxes are an easy one politically because um, they tend to be less of a vote loser than raising personal taxes. If you raise personal taxes, then um, that's a real turn-off for the electorate, whereas if you raise corporate taxes, it um, it tends to impact a smaller proportion of the, the population, so uh, much more politically palatable. That certainly seems to be the easy one, and obviously we... Uh the UK has one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the world. Um, you know, the moment um, there's been like that for, for, for quite a few years. Um, probably we're going to see that here in the UK. Um, you know, does square quite maybe contrary to, to Brexit, but, yeah, but uh, is, is a bit of a tricky one. It's tricky. I and mean, obviously if they, if they use corporate taxes as a means to try to balance the budget, then, uh, they might just serve to deter foreign investment in the UK exactly. at a time when they need it most. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's yeah. a really difficult thing to balance. Yeah, uh, a real a real balancing act. Um, so we're, we're kind of rapidly going through all of our all of our uh, points, which is great. Um, so the next one is obviously valuations uh, of markets and uh, the outlook uh, for earnings. So maybe just a bit of a recap. Um, obviously. Um, uh, stock prices have moved up to to in, in many cases to to record highs, um, and um, earnings have not just caught up. So optically, the valuations look very stretched, but you're talking at about a, an economic level that um, an earnings level that haven't quite reached to uh, to their peaks. And I go back to the step one and step two analogy we 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 talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and so earnings haven't quite kind of got back to where they would be pre-pandemic. Um, have, for example, in tech sector and some other sectors that are uh, have, have grown throughout the um, uh, COVID uh, environment. But generally, we're, we're kind of not there. And so optically, valuations look um, uh, expensive. Um, how how should investors think about you know earnings going forward and valuation and and looking backwards versus looking forwards. I mean, I, the truth is, I think you always need to do a bit of both. You need to look backwards to get a sense of historical perspective, but uh, you shouldn't be a slave to the backward-looking valuations. You also need to consider what's likely to happen in markets over the next 12 to 24 months, because that's really the premium period that's discounted into current prices. So actually, I think this year, the outlook for profits is fantastic. Um, I think if you consider the behaviour of corporate profitability off the lows of the global financial crisis and you uh, consider, um, you know, you apply that analogy to today's situation, then actually I think, uh, uh, you know, the outlook for corporate is very good. As you say, you know, take a bit of time for the market to have confidence in uh, that earnings will grow sufficiently to justify current uh, valuations. But, but I think, you know, I think that they will later this year, obviously contingent on an ongoing strong global growth and, and corporate recovery. So um, look forwards, not backwards, I think is the uh, kind of simple message when you're looking at uh, earnings and valuations. Uh, clearly, some countries like China optically look a lot cheaper 
because they've already recovered and and uh, their earnings are yeah, already exactly. uh, gone gone to peak. So uh, the key thing is to just kind of peel the onion a little bit and just not look um, uh, just look at backward metrics, but but think about forward metrics. Otherwise, you know, you could easily miss. Uh, you can easily miss, um, you know, uh, potential large gains going forward uh, as those earnings. I think the key key message really is that price earnings multiples, which is you know one of the metrics that many people use, uh, will start to come down as earnings uh, increases uh, and price probably not going up as much as it did over the last twelve months. Um, would would naturally lead to that PE coming down, and then the markets look a lot cheaper. Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, which uh, it more reflects a, a, a more peak earnings uh, multiple. Um, in terms of, um, uh, I guess, catch up. You know, which countries or which regions need uh, are probably most behind in that earnings improvement? Any thoughts on that? I think um, obviously European markets have. Uh, done well over the past few months and I think that reflects that delayed uh, impact on, on earnings. I think you know, also the UK looks interesting although clearly the makeup of the UK market is quite unique. Uh, those probably be the, you know, the two main areas at the moment. As I said I think emerging markets is going through a less extreme cyclical rebound than we've seen in previous cycles. So um, uh, you know Similarly, you'd expect the you know, the earnings rebound to be less extreme than previous cycles, but there are yeah there are of course countries that will uh, are the exception there. Um, so the other big question we get is this kind of rotation between growth companies and value companies and cyclicals versus defensives, um, and uh, you know maybe it's just worth repeating what we mean by that. So um, growth companies typically. Um, are growing throughout the cycle so uh, so they you know um, yes they'll be stronger during cyclical up uh, uh, upticks versus down downticks but typically they'll be growing throughout the cycle um, uh, because of innovation or because of um, uh, kind of structural trends um, and some of those companies like Amazon did for 20 years, not make much profit, uh, if anything, just consistently losing money. But it was growing revenues and it was growing um, yeah, its its value quite um, uh, quite substantially, uh, but was reinvesting hugely. And those typically, those stocks, uh, particularly the mid-cap rather than the very large cap, would have some sensitivity to discount rates, i.e. interest rates, uh, over the long term. Uh, so if you were, you know, looking at a company on a on a ten year forward basis, the discount rate you would apply uh, would impact the valuation quite significantly, even for small changes in the, in the interest rates or, or the discount rate uh, the one applies. And so typically, what we've had over the course of the last three or four um, months is that uh, discount rate, i.e., interest rates have gone up. That has meant that the cash flows. Are, um, are are less valuable and, and and the price or the future price of that company then looks a lot less uh, attractive we've seen significant pullbacks in those companies you know 20 30 40% uh, and that's typically what people mean by by growth companies conversely value companies um, tend not had to have a lot slower growth rates um, tend to be a little bit more cyclical 
um, and um, uh, you know we'll have kind of short term bursts of outperformance and then you know uh, short term bursts of underperformance but don't really go very far for many years um value stocks have done very well as a result of the improving economic conditions um and uh, the, suddenly that has moved quite substantially energy companies for example uh, are the most obvious uh, an extreme example i guess where uh, you know one thing we do know is energy demand is going to be down you know, substantially over the years, um, or oil, oil demand, sorry, to be, to be clear, um, uh, will be down as a result of um, uh, climate um, initiatives. Uh, but those stocks have been the best performing so far, so far this year. Um, just on that, um, any sense of how cyclicals should be looked at going forward, given a lot is already in the price? Yeah, I think yeah, it's one of the key questions for markets. And it's interesting that over the past few weeks, actually, there's there's been a bit of a battle in markets. And, uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of rotation from one day to the next. So it's actually been hard to establish leadership between, you know, growth or, or cyclicals. I think that given that this year is going to be a really strong uh, global growth environment, that's usually pretty supportive of cyclical stocks. And then we're back to this question of what's already priced and what isn't. The fact that we've seen a bit of a pause and performance has been uh, a bit more mixed recently within the cyclical sector suggests that there's there's probably quite a lot of that already priced in. And also given that growth expectations have been re- revised up so far. So I don't think that's a terrible environment for cyclicals given that growth is still strong and accelerating in some parts of the world. But it does suggest that there's quite a lot already priced in. Yeah, so certainly a bit of balance is probably the right word, given that it's been a very um, straightforward, um, uh, you know, cyclical value rally over the course of the last, uh, well, certainly since um, um, uh, the vaccine, uh, or first rollout of the vaccines in uh, in uh, some middle of Q4, sort of early November, uh, they've been on absolute tear uh, since then. So very natural for, for those cyclicals to, to go through a bit of a pause and maybe a bit of flip back to those kind of more structural growers uh, that um, uh, that have generally underperformed over the course of the last uh, six months or so. Um, and then um, other sort of areas that um, investors are very interested in is is on uh, on gold, um, industrial metals. I guess the inflation inflation hedging going on there. Even even cryptocurrencies, although um, uh, you know controversially whether they are indeed um, uh, inflation hedges. I think uh, I think some of the uh, professionals out there who are buying cryptocurrencies would like to think they're inflation hedges. But um, you know, uh, uh, an inflation hedge or long-term inflation hedge could could be quite painful um, in the short term, uh, given the, the huge amounts of volatility. Um, so uh, I think that's that in particular is quite a, quite an interesting development. Uh, the other kind of key question um, then is around um, uh, the dollar um, and uh, any thoughts on there? Uh, for me personally. The dollar looks like it's behaving fundamentally as it should do, um, you know, a bit weaker given given um, uh, spreads between euro rates and, and dollar rates are, are narrowing. Uh, it looks maybe too obvious. 
Uh, well, I'd agree with you. I mean, uh, sometimes uh, you shouldn't try to be too clever in markets. And so I think that's right. Mate. I think it, this uh, narrowing of spreads, this sort of normalisation of rates in Europe, which has lagged the normalisation in the US, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about current dollar behaviour and, um, you know, something that we would expect to continue. So certainly for the time being, we continue to look for uh, for dollar weakness across all the major currencies such as sterling, euros, uh, probably the yen is probably the exception uh, at this point in time. Um, um, it was fascinating that the euro-yen crosses seem to be going the other way, and and, and that I, f- I find quite interesting in terms of uh, maybe slight changes in policy that are developing. So yeah, the dollar-yen um, is probably the exception where the yen is certainly uh, on the weaker side. So that was a blistering blisteringly fast um, podcast in terms of uh, tackling all the the key controversies at the moment. Um, well, Daniel, thank you very much for uh, for going through that quick fire round. Um, I think we covered a lot in a very short space of time. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening in. If you do have any questions, please drop us uh, an email at beyond at fgam.com. I'll repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. If you have any questions and if there are any ideas for future podcasts, please let us know as well. Uh, With that, thank you very much for listening and we'll speak again soon.